your views, your news, your Limerick Today with Joe Nash on Live 95. Now, radio and TV presenter Hector is no stranger to a good adventure and we always enjoy having him on the show and his new TV service um, his new TV service. He's launching his own TV service. <laughs> he, he's he's probably going to be as shocked as anybody else to discover this because he would have thought it was a TV series, which in fact it is. <laughs> Good morning, Hector. How are you doing? Morning, Joe. That's an interesting idea, launching your own TV channel. But you look at hey, in the world in the world we live in now, and the way we consume news, we're all experts, and we've all got our own little TV channels on our mobiles, don't we? We do, and I know you do podcasts, and you do lots of other things. So maybe sure, it's the next natural step, Hector TV. Yeah, well, judging by my daily routine, coaching under 19s now in football, you want to see Tuesday. Tuesday and Friday nights up in Clergoway, the pitch in Clergoway. That'll be real reality television dealing with a load of 17, 18, 19 year olds. I believe it. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. But that's, isn't that, but that's reality. That's the, uh, you know, I suppose Big Brother and all those reality shows, when they broke the mold years, 20 something years ago, cameras all over rooms and following people living in a house. Like, that seems like it was only just yesterday. Mm. But that's the way television has gone. Look yeah. at Love Island and all that crack. But it must be brilliant to have all those young people back uh, at things like GA training. Ah, stop. I'm ha- Joe, I'm happiest on the sideline. My two boys are playing. I have a 16-year-old and an 18-year-old. and I've been coaching a, a boot bunch of young lads since they were six or seven years of age. They won a minor A title last year. Five or six of them playing on the goal with minors. I've never been so proud of a bunch of young lads. And that it, it, I, I've said it before that I'm happiest when I'm on the sideline of a GA pitch. Coming from Mead and playing football, like the best I ever did was me minor when I was younger, but to be involved as a volunteer and as a coach and the way you work with a group of, group of young lads and a group of girls, whoever it is that you're training as a volunteer coach, the bonds that you create, the friendship that you create, the, the camaraderie and the sense of community and the sense of enjoyment, especially on the sidelines of GA pitches, it's, it's an incredible thing to go with lads through sixth class, first year, second year, watch them turning into young men, teenagers, and then, and then, they get, they're on the cusp of minor and from minor then into an 18, 19 it's a very important bridge for them so that they stick at Gaelic football and that they hopefully will go into senior because it's mad how many youngsters are playing minor football this year and under 19 football and how many of them will go into senior football you're only talking a, a, a spattering of each team around the country two to three to four lads maybe so it's a very important time for them youngsters to be still enjoying their football at a difficult age of leaving cert college coming up and all that yeah, I presume you must have been pretty frustrated by these recent stories of the kind of nonsense that was going on on some sidelines, not all, you know. Uh, look at it, yo, look at it. Uh, what really annoys me sometimes is the coaches that lose the run of themselves. Every year you do your vet guard of vetting and you do your online coaches thing with the GAA and you're asked a bunch of questions about ethics and principles and the right thing to do. And there's four, multiple choice questions. What happens in this particular situation? Unfortunately... Look, we all get our, in the heat of battle and competitiveness gets, gets higher at minor level and under-19 level and then you get into junior A or you get into senior. But unfortunately, some coaches just... What does my head in, Joe, is people who encroach on the pitch. There's these coaches that walk 20 yards out from the sideline, up and down as if they're playing wing back. And that really gets mm. me going. Yeah. Just get off the pitch and let the youngsters do it. Unfortunately, parents get involved local rivalries get involved and, and com- if it's competitive mm. um, the referee is a hard enough job you know this this coming weekend is referees respect day as well so 
We've yeah. got to respect the referees but, in the middle, but it's just difficult. But I mean, Hector, I mean, you made the point that you, you were good enough to play a Meath minor, which is no small achievement now, to be fair. Um, but I, I mean, I was absolutely useless at sport, but I ended up loving it because uh, I was encouraged. And, you know, that's important, isn't it? Absolutely. I've, there's, there's, there's lads that are on playing football in, in, in the club and coaching in Clairvaux that were never on the team under 12, under 14. They never made the fail a team. But all of a sudden, something clicks. And when you've got a youngster who was always sitting on the bench, getting the old 10 minutes at the end of the game, confidence wasn't there, wasn't doing the right things, ball wasn't sticking, taking a shot that was gone wide. But when you see them improving, and you have a player, we have a number of them that are improving and improving. Some players are brilliant at 12. Some players are brilliant at 14. They're always on the pitch. But then when you see somebody who just clicks, something clicks at 15, 16, they start improving at a rate of knots. And those players who start making the team as a centre back and midfielder, whatever position, and they're on the first, their names are on the team sheet by the time they're 17 and 18. That to me is my job as a coach, that they've improved, you know, because good players are good players. The lads that are really good at soccer or girls that are really good at, at soccer or Gaelic football or camogie in school at seven and eight, you know when they're really good. But the ones that improve slowly through teenage years for a coach, that's just the nuggets. You find those nuggets once in a blue moon, and they're the ones that really—that's that's what you—that's your job and, as a coach. You're trying to make them better. And Hector, I mean, you would know from all the people that you met around the world and around Ireland over the years that you know, for Limerick people, for example, how long the wait was for that ultimate hurling success, and how much it means to people here. Oh, phenomenal! What Limerick are doing are setting the bench. They're setting the benchmark. We were, I'm sorry, no disrespect to Dublin and the and all the all Ireland's they won, but. You know, hurling needed new superstars. Uh, I mean, you know, Kilkenny, the the golden era had, had had petered out. Who was going to take over that mantle? Galway had a chance; they had a slice of it. And but all of a sudden, in the last four to five years, these amazing hurlers from from Limerick have come out like young Cullen warriors. They're they're like they're like a tribe. They're they're unified. They are they're majestic. They're strong. They're powerful. They're skillful. They are good young men of Ireland and that's why the GA was set up we were set up to mind the young men and women of this country the GA was set up because cricket was becoming the dominant sport a hundred and something years ago and it was to, to keep men happy and healthy and they epitomise everything the GA is about like you could make a car, you could make a comic book about the, the, the Limerick Hurlers superheroes they're brilliant and they've set the bar so high you know and everyone is trying to knock them now but what they're doing for the county is magnificent they're, they're setting down they're setting down legends. They're setting down stories. They're becoming mythical characters. And, and in a hundred years' time, people will still be talking their names. Mm. And that's a very powerful thing to do mm. on this island. And that's what's in our DNA. That's why I love the GA. Yeah. It's in our blood. It's I'm happiest on the sideline of a GA pitch. And when a youngster comes up to me at the end of the game or in a training session and goes, thanks. And they say, thanks, Hector. Enjoy that. And I give them a slap in the back and say, good man, in a wet, in a wet winter's evening. And they could be lying at home playing the Xbox or doing whatever they're doing. When they say thanks, I know yeah. that we have a bond and I know that I'm doing the right thing yeah, to these guys. Absolutely. And, and by the way, in terms of your own sons, are they looking down at you at this age? I got a shoulder off one of them there in the kitchen the other day now and uh, let's just say there was a bit of mead, there was a bit of mead in the shoulder. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I, I have to, I have to, I, yeah. Big, I can't, I, I, listen, that's these young lads are eating out of house and home. They're like two healthy bullocks. And uh, if the if the dinner's not on the table when they come in at four o'clock, there's war. They'll eat you out of house and home. But it's the same in any family who uh, any family that that's busy and they're, they're playing sport and they're coming in from secondary school. It's just it's a restaurant. It's a it's a it's a full time 
24 hour restaurant. We got the air dryer, or whatever it's called, the air fryer. Mother <laughs> of God. Jesus, Harry and Joseph. I'd be heading to bed. I'd be heading to bed about 11 o'clock, and I'm, I'm looking, I'm down in the kitchen. It's like walking into a Chinese. I said, What's going on here? Oh, we're just going on a few, uh, a few chicken breasts, a few this. I said, It's 11 o'clock at night. But that's the way it goes. Uh, you tell a lovely story about uh, yourself and your better half. And when you got your first TV series and hopping around the kitchen and, and still feeling the same all these years later. Yeah, uh, you can't, you cannot uh, imagine that you're going to grow up and make TV shows or do anything in the public eye or show business or whatever you want to call it. Like, you know, how could I say that to my mates and Nav and growing up in the 80s? Like, how could I say that I've travelled the world? How would I know that I've travelled the world, travelled the world for 22 years making the same TV show? Like, so I will never forget that first day when I got my first job on television. I was on the dole and my wife was a, a trainee teacher and uh, we were living in a little apartment, a little flat in Galway and in Middle Street. And uh, I, I jumped around, the, we jumped around the kitchen together because I was so excited. She was with me when I got my first job on television. She's a proud Clare woman from a good hurling parish of Dura Bearfield. Uh, I'm married into the Kilfenora Cayley Band, the greatest, the Rolling Stones of Irish Cayley music. So, uh, I've got deep, deep Clare blood on the other side of the family and uh, it's a good mixture. The Mead, my mother Galway and the Clare blood. I'm happy with that. That's so, good. Uh, yeah, yeah. No, not that's a where bad maybe mix. the love of Hurland, you know, the James O'Connor, the Sean McMahon. I was at a wedding with Sean McMahon and James O'Connor there uh, last year and I sat with them and I was in awe with these men and I just sat with them. We had a couple of drinks and I just, Sean McMahon from Clare, the centre-back, one of the greatest centre-backs of all time. Yeah. And uh, I'm sure these Limerick boys know all about the, the Clare boys and the legends that have gone before them, and and uh, we spoke about the Limerick hurlers. There's so many, there's so many great Irish men that have played the game over the years, and to me, they're all legends. Yeah. But yeah, we jumped around the kitchen when I got my first show. She's not jumping around the kitchen too much now when I say I'm heading off for another. Three <laughs> well, weeks well, here. well, yes, yes, thirteen well, weeks here. Well, right. teenage boys in the house. Well, it's a good point. It's a good point. So, Hector, let, let's talk about it then. Uh, it's the new series, and it's on TG Car from the 27th of October next week at 9:30. Tell us about it. Where, where have you yeah. gone and what have you discovered? Yeah, this night week we start uh, and it's it's interesting. You know, we were we were locked down. I did a couple of series around the country during lockdown, but we, we hadn't gone to the airport. We hadn't travelled like we had done for the previous 20 years. So myself and Roscoe and Evan, we were very excited to get the green light COVID-wise, to get the certs, to get the COVID certs, to get the PCRs and to head to Dublin Airport. So last winter, through the winter, through October, November, December, January, February, and into March, we filmed all the way through Eastern Europe. Who would have ever known that every single man, woman, and child knows exactly what Eastern Europe looks like now, where exactly Eastern Europe is, what are the countries of Eastern Europe, where is the Black Sea, where is the place called Crimea? Tell me where, where, where Ukraine is, and now we all know. We would never have forecasted this or thought this as we were travelling through Turkey last October, into Bulgaria, into Serbia, into Romania which all of these countries into Poland, all of these countries straddling the Ukraine. I was supposed to be filming in the Ukraine in the middle of December last year, but we pulled out of there when we heard that Putin was organizing his troops and his tanks on the Ukrainian border. We all knew for weeks and weeks that Putin was doing this, but we never thought that we'd be now seven or eight or nine months into a full-scale war that's only three hours away on a Ryanair flight. I mean, this is not on the other side of the world. This is just on a couple of hours away from Dublin Airport. So, uh, it's it's going to be very current, it's going to be very topical, and all my journey, Joe, skirts around these countries that were once influenced and ruled by Russia. This is behind the Iron Curtain. 
in a world that I don't think Irish people really know that well. Mm. So we're really yeah. proud of it through, I, through I, winter, yeah. through Eastern yeah. Europe. I, I think that's very, very well made point. It, it's Balkans go Baltics. And yes. I, I mean, I, I was thinking myself this morning that probably growing up, like, my my understanding of that part of the world was largely around soccer clubs, you know, Red Star, Belgrade, yes, yes, yes. Or, you know, but that was it. Yes, I had yes, no yes. notion beyond that. Well, there you go. There you go. Like CSKA, Sofia, Red Star, Belgrade, um, all those brilliant teams in Turkey. You land, we landed in Istanbul. One of the, the, the next, next Thursday night is a show from one of the greatest cities I've ever been in my life. A multi-million population city called Istanbul on the banks of the Bosphorus, which is a 25-mile strait of water that links the Black Sea to the Mediterranean. It is the only way out for the Russian ships and the nuclear submarines and their massive cargo ships and the, the grain ships from the Ukraine. For those ships to leave the Black Sea, they have to travel through the Bosphorus and they have to come right through the city of Istanbul. You could be sitting in Istanbul having a coffee on one side of the river in Europe and you can walk across the bridge and you are in Asia. It has been a trading point for thousands of years. The Ottomans were there, the Romans were there, the Turks were there. Even the Celtic tribes went all the way down that part of the world. It's one of the most amazing, frenetically beautiful, mad cities I've ever been in in my life. For, and you're talking about football. Fernabache, Galatasaray, Besiktas and Bashashakir. Four fanatical football teams in one city. So there's a, there's a footballing mad place. And I did a story with Besiktas supporters. They're known as the fishmongers, the fish people from down by the river. So we mm. start off in that great city. Right. And, we, and we sit with a guy who tells me, what traffic? Who are the people that are... What boats? And how big are these boats? And how big are these nuclear submarines and these warships that are... You can have a coffee. And by law, the submarine has to come out of the water in the Bosphorus. So you're watching a nuclear submarine. 50 yards away, really? passing through this amazing stretch of water. So, it's Joe, we get off to a really good start, and it's Turkey. And look at the ge- geographical, political mm, yeah. location of Turkey. Yeah. T- tell me, um, that part of the world, I mean, do they know anything about Ireland at all? Uh, listen, they, everybody, everybody has, some people would have a good sense of Ireland that we meet. Um, you know, the... the, the the Guinness and and, and and U2 and stuff like that, they would be fairly impressive. It depends on the person you're talking to. Mm. Uh, but, but they do, but they do know. But I've a, I've a sense that these, these are our Eastern European cousins. Like, Turkey's not in the European Union yet. Bulgaria, as, as one guy said to me in Bulgaria, Hector, yes, we're in the European Union, but we're in the waiting room because they haven't accepted them fully and they don't accept their currency. They're in the waiting room of the European Union. The Ukraine are now trying to be fast-tracked through the waiting room of the European Union. I mean, when we get to Latvia and Lithuania, these are countries that are only 32 years old since they, tr- since they broke away from the Russian rule. They're only 30 years old. And I was in Lithuania when the war broke out in Kiev, which is only a couple of hundred kilometres. And, those, and to be in that country and those cities when war broke out, I, 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 it's very hard to, to try and explain the sadness the fear that we're on the face of every single man, woman and child in Lithuania and Latvia because these countries are tiny. Mm. Russia would roll in there in a day. It would chew them up and spit them out and, and, and they would be back into Russian rule. Mm. So there's a real feeling on the whole series as I go through Romania, Serbia, Poland, that there is a lot of historical baggage and, and, and the, mind, the mind frame 
and 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 the, and the hardship and the persecution and the destruction and the and the wars that went on and, and and all of that you can feel it on the streets you can feel it on the streets of Bucharest and of Belgrade and of Sofia and of Krakow and of Warsaw and of Riga so I just think it's a uh, and we filmed in the middle of winter and the snow hit and it was really cold and there are beautiful people and yet there are Eastern European cousins that I I really don't think we know that well hopefully throughout the series people will warm to it and they'll get a real good insight into these great countries that are over there on the other side of Europe. All right. Brilliant. Great to talk to you, Hector, as always. So the series Balkans Go Baltics is starting on 27th of October next week on TG Car at 9.30. And uh, you heard uh, briefly there from Hector about his trip, but there'll be much more and a lot of crack as part of it, as is always the case with Hector. Great to chat to you, Hector. Do take care. Your views, your news, your Limerick Today with Joe Nash on Live 95.